Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian on the mic, and I'm joined by Dan. Hey, Brian. How's it going? Welcome. We are heading into the thick of October now. It's Halloween season. Is your preparation proceeding apace? Yeah. I did some of the traditional autumn suburban activities this past weekend. I went to a pumpkin patch, put on a sweater, uh, got some apple cider donuts, pulled out the old Halloween and autumn books to read with the kids. So uh, getting in the spirit, we were just starting to figure out what we're going to do for, for Halloween this year. Uh, we're not sure our, our, how our new neighborhood's going to be for trick-or-treating because, you know, it's our, we just moved. And so it's a new neighborhood, new set of neighbors who, who knows if they put out the full candy bars or not, or if they even answer the door, but uh, we're we're gonna try it out. You know, it's it's getting in the swing of fall. What about you? Well, first off, my prediction is that bigger houses means bigger candy bars. But you'll have to let me know if that turns out to be true. We'll see. But my own preparation is going well today. I finally got the tombstones out in the yard. I've had the giant Home Depot skeleton up all month, which is the centerpiece. But I fleshed it out some today. Yeah, we'll see. I'm glad, as always, that we get to throw on some spooktacular films this time of year. You know, last year, I expressed some Halloween ennui in the middle of the month. I wasn't exactly feeling it, but then everything kind of came together at the end of the month, and I ended up having the best Halloween I'd ever had. So I don't expect lightning to strike twice, but... I guess I'm in the stage of, what do they call it? Law of attraction. Speaking things into being. So if I put the positive fall energy out there, maybe I'll get what I give. Very nice, yeah. I, I hope it is a an excellent Halloween for you. H- have you been watching anything spooky? Obviously, we're going to have today's selection, and we had last week's too. But have you done any ex- extracurricular spook season watching? Not really. I mean, I talked about the... Dahmer biopic drama last time but no I am in the mood for some more traditional Halloween-y offerings and luckily I mean that's the name of the game here we've got some more on the horizon and I was glad to have the opportunity to assign today's entry which is the TV movie Ghost Watch it's a British film from 1992 were you familiar with this one at all Dan? I'd never heard of it prior to last week. Well, before we dive in, I'll just say I haven't been to a pumpkin patch yet. I'm trying to slot that into my calendar. I've been pretty busy with grad school, but it'll happen. In some form or another, by the end of the month, I'll make sure to get to one. Nice, yeah. And hopefully it'll be sincere, right? You gotta have a sincere pumpkin patch. That's what Linus taught us. (laughs) That's good, yeah. I watched that again this year. It ticks up slightly in my estimation each time I watch it. But not to be a cynic, but maybe I'm just like a parent now and an adult. And so I have certain eyes and lenses into the world. But it feels so commercialized at these pumpkin patches. Like they're just manufacturing ways to get you to buy stuff. It's like, I don't know. They're like inventing fall products that didn't previously exist. And I don't know. Interesting. I'd I'd like to hear more about that. What do you mean? Well... 
there was a sign. It said annual cow train, cow train. I was like, what is the sequence of that word? That, that doesn't make sense. Come ride the cow train and get your picture taken. And it t- costs $2 a ticket. So, okay, either I'm going to pay $8 and we're all going to go and we're going to get our picture taken, or I'm not going to do the cow train. But, like, they, I think they invented this. It's like a little miniature. I don't know if you've been to the mall and seen they have a little train and pulls around. It's just like a little tractor with added cars on the back that are paint black and white. But they definitely made up cow train so that they could have something that you pay $2 a ticket for. So, I don't know. And then now it's like, for apple cider donuts, how much do you think a dozen ap- apple cider donuts would cost? Six bucks. Seventeen dollars. Seventeen dollars. Seventeen dollars for a dozen apple cider donuts. Wow, I would not expect more than a dollar a donut. Outrageous. <laughs> uh, honestly, apple is one of the things I don't eat much of. It tends not to agree with me, so I prefer the pumpkin donuts. Okay, yeah, but it is a hallmark of the season. Wow, seventeen dollars. That's the true horror tonight. Cow trains and $17 donuts, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess the pumpkin patches I go to, it tends to be a, a lump sum admission and not so many of the microtransactions. It's like you buy the one ticket and then that entitles you to one hayride and one haunted house and you can go and stand by the fire pit and whatever else. Yeah, we, we opted for the pumpkin patch that was like i think it was less than ten dollars a ticket to get in so for four of us you know that's pretty reasonable for day's activity but then basically all it does is it gets you in and like lets you play on the playgrounds and stuff that are there you you had to pay for the pumpkins like i know some of them you get one free pumpkin with admission you had to pay for every single bit of food and some of the rides were free but some were not some you had to pay a little bit extra for so it's I mean, I guess that's like if you have a farm out there, this is a big moneymaker thing, you know, so you, you, you put your all into it. Right. I see. We'll definitely have more pumpkin patch discussion as the month unfolds. But for right now, let's talk about the movie. We're a film podcast after all, and it's Ghost Watch Night. Now, this was a TV movie that was aired once on the BBC. So it's a British film. I think we've had a couple British movies so far, Dan. Is that right? Does that track? Definitely, yeah. Uh, we had A Night to Remember, the Titanic movie. I feel like we had one recently, didn't we? Oh, we had Bedazzled not too long ago. Oh, sure enough. Yeah. Well, you could call this A Fright to Remember. Oh, I love it. But this was on on Halloween night, 1992, and it's a pseudo-documentary. That's what Wikipedia calls it. It's sort of a mockumentary, except it's not funny. It's a horror film. So... You could also maybe call it our first found footage horror film that we've covered. Have you watched much found footage, Dan? A little bit. Not all that much. I definitely want to catch up with a couple more of them. A couple people I follow are fond of them. I would say this is found footage. To me, found footage should be not strictly a mechanism where footage is, has been found. Like anything that is sort of the spooky mockumentary to me. Although I think it goes further than that too. There's because there's some mockumentaries that to me are, are found footage, like not in the horror realm. Like there's something a little bit more to it. So like, what's your definition of found footage? Yeah. I am in favor of counting this as found footage, but I mean, you could think that that is a more specific 
description. You know, lots of found footage movies is like something happened that caused the footage to no longer be in the possession of the filmmakers, often because they died. Mm -hmm. And it was like collected and reviewed subsequent to some disaster. Like in uh, Cloverfield, I think maybe some of them survived, but like the government took possession of the film and now it's like in an archive or something. Something that makes this different also is I think of found footage as being found after the fact. And this is supposedly live. It's supposedly going out live. But now that you say that, I think that is a trademark of found footage as opposed to mockumentary. So like mockumentary could be a look back on something. But found footage needs to be like capturing what is happening in the moment. And at least for horror, that's where the scares come in, because it's like it's putting you in the shoes of the the characters of the film, the people who are doing the filming. Right. But also, yeah, found footage is just a useful term for these kind of faux reality films that lean into horror. Like when you say mockumentary, you probably think it's going to be funny you know, like Spinal Tap or even The Office or something, then, like, you could even have a, a fake documentary like Exit Through the Gift Shop or F for Fake that we talked about, where it's it's not really funny, but it's not a horror film either. So I think found footage successfully puts us in that camp, if we use that term. I watched, man, what's it called? I think it's called Project X, which is basically... Super bad found footage. I remember seeing the trailers for that back in the day and like thinking it was cool that found footage was branching into other genres. Yeah. But I don't think it went much beyond that. The only other one I saw was actually a post pandemic movie, a Zoom found footage type thing, except it was like a dramedy. It wasn't a horror. I know that they've done those types of things with horror too. Oh, right. The one I saw was called Language Lessons. And it was directed by Natalie Morales, who plays Tom's girlfriend in Parks and Rec. And she's co-stars in it, too. Interesting. I know one of the unfriended sequels took place all in something like Zoom. Mm. And we're definitely going to be talking about using technological media in your horror film tonight. And like how tech evolves over the years. I wanted to talk a little bit more about found footage horror. Now, I didn't do an exhaustive deep dive. This is not a roots of animation history lesson, but uh, just a few important early found footage horror films that I have seen and can comment on. One of the first, arguably the first, is Cannibal Holocaust, which was made in 1980. You probably have not seen Cannibal Holocaust, Dan. Is that accurate yeah i have not seen it but its reputation precedes it yeah it's grody it's gross but it does have this framing device where the filmmakers went into the jungle and suffered this terrible fate and then their footage was recovered and wild that it was this early in 1980 and then it doesn't really seem like anybody touched the format for a while after that but then the big one the elephant in the room is the Blair Witch Project from 1998. And that's the one that really put this idea of found footage in everybody's mind, on everybody's radar, with the campers going into the woods and getting witched. Yeah, I really like 
Blair Witch. I think it's really good execution of its premise, and it really was novel at the time. I saw it once when I was like in middle school or high school, and it scared me shitless. And then I saw it again in college, and was better able to like appreciate it. But ha- have you seen Blair Witch? I have, but it was a long time after all the hubbub. It was probably towards the end of my time in high school. And when I finally watched it, I did not find it very scary. I don't know. It it just had been built up for me that it was going to be really scary. And it just seemed like a lot of people walking around in the woods and yelling at each other. I mean, I think at that point, the general format was kind of novel. And I think it did a good job of like playing with your imagination and like making you feel like you were going crazy along with the people there and like getting stalked by this spirit that you couldn't quite see. And I think there's some of that in tonight's too. Absolutely. But yeah, it's kind of funny and to be cynical once again, I I don't think it's controversial the claim that the found footage wave got some big support from Hollywood because of how cheap it is to make. It's like literally you just take a camcorder and walk around and you've made your movie that can make nine figures at the box office. Yeah, I've often heard it claimed that Blair Witch Project remains the most profitable film ever made because it was so cheap and it blew up so big. It's actually number two behind Paranormal Activity, another found footage film. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, Paranormal Activity kind of kicked off another wave of it in like the late 2000s. There was that superhero one, I think it was called Chronicle, that pushed the genre a little bit. But around the same time as Blair Witch Project, I think just slightly before it came out, there was another movie called The Last Broadcast. This is one I learned about from James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd online who does just as much film commentary as he does video game commentary, or he used to in the 2000s. And this one is about, like, public access hosts going into the woods to do a report on the Jersey Devil. So they're camping in the Pine Barrens, which is this New Jersey forest, and they mysteriously end up murdered. And then it's like this early true crime guy going around trying to study this footage and hopefully learn what happened to the public access hosts. And that was almost the episode selection, because it's pretty interesting, too. But I instead chose Ghostwatch, which is from 1992, and I think doesn't get talked about enough, because that's six years before Blair Witch. Wow. And honestly, I think it's like creative DNA goes back firmly and squarely to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast that he did on... Halloween night, 1938. Oh, yeah. Which was presented in the pseudo news broadcast style and caused a national uproar. That's a really good poll. I think as we dig through this, that that seems like a really good connection. One last thought on found footage. I was thinking a little bit about it. It's almost like the evolution of the epistolary novel, like the the Dracula type novels, because they're writing what's happening from their perspective and and found footage is kind of the same way. And I feel like there've been a couple of notable horror novels that have been in that style. Something about like putting you squarely in the heads of the characters makes it more scary. I think, I don't know. Yeah. There might be something to that. And of course the epistolary novel has branched out into 
young adult romance and all manner of genres. So oh, yeah. why not found footage? <laughs> A couple other things before our recap. This story was heavily influenced by the Enfield Poltergeist case, which took place in London in 1977 to 79 and we'll uh, refer back to that a couple times as we recap the film but that was really like the inspiration for the specifics of what's going on in the paranormal investigation in the film it was a contemporary case of the amityville horror in america and the paranormal investigators who investigated amityville crossed the pond and also consulted in this poltergeist case. Those were the Warrens, the couple that are featured in all the Conjuring films. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, so the Conjuring 2 is specifically mostly based on the Enfield poltergeist. And actually pretty much anything that you see about poltergeists, like the movie Poltergeist in the early 80s, this was in vogue at the time largely because of this poltergeist case and like the public understanding of what a poltergeist supposedly is comes from this for the most part i thought it was noteworthy that ghost watch is directed by a woman leslie manning and actually it's only the third film that we've covered with a solo director credit to a woman the other two being the Care Bears movie, and The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Feels like we got to up that ratio. Yeah, maybe so. But I'll call it out when I see it. Nice, yeah. I think I first became aware of Ghostwatch around 2012, which longtime listeners may remember uh, is when I discovered the Rock of Fire explosion and at least one other film we've covered already, which is when I was like, reading a lot of reddit threads about movies and there was discussion about this one that was so scary they only showed it once and never again never again aired on the bbc <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit more about that as well but we'll talk a little bit about the story now and see if it truly was that spine tingling so the special is presented as a documentary style report on paranormal happenings that have been transpiring in a house in a London suburb. And the family who lives there is a single mother raising two young daughters, one who's like a young teenager and one younger than that. And they have been reporting poltergeist activity. So the BBC has put together a fun special for halloween night they're going to be reporting from inside and outside the house and i think they say they're going to be reporting all night long which is one kind of inconsistent element because then later on they make reference to it being an hour-long program it's like but i thought you said you're going to be there all night but okay anyhow they are pulling out all the stops in terms of broadcast technology they've got like all the cameras you could want the house is all wired with, like, closed-circuit cameras like Paranormal Activity. There's a whole, like, media van out in the street to do man-on-the-street interviews. There's a reporter who's stationed inside the house who's going around talking to the family. And then there's a whole studio presence as well. So the main 
host in the studio is a guy named Michael Parkinson. The one inside the house is a woman named Sarah Green. This is the reporter in there. The man on the street interview guy is named Craig Charles. And then there's also a man stationed at the phone bank taking calls named Mike Smith. And what's kind of crazy is that these were all prominent BBC personalities playing themselves. These are reporters that people knew. This is wild. This is where you get into the the War of the Worlds type thing, because just imagine flipping it on. And, you know, it's one thing if you flip it on and it's clearly fake and clearly even just people you don't know, you know, who are acting. But when it's like real reporters who are doing it, I can imagine this being convincing. Right. Throughout the program, they also consult with experts. Now, they've got one main expert on the supernatural named Dr. Lynn Pascoe, and she has been investigating the family, she says, for eight months, covering what's been going on at the house, and it seems like she was influential in setting up this broadcast. And she's there in the studio with Parkinson, the the main central host, throughout there's also a guy who phones in from America who's the token skeptic there to rebuke and scoff. And that dude reminded me of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. His vocal delivery was pretty similar, and there's not a lot of people who sound like Jeff Goldblum. That's interesting. Yeah, I can see that. One thing that threw me off is I think they had both a physicist and a psychic, except they didn't just call it a psychic. It was like a, well, I don't think it was a psychicist. It was some other word. And my brain got them like scrambled. It was like, wait, which one of them is the skeptic and which one of them is the, believes in the supernatural stuff. Right. So let's dig into that a little bit because this plays on two British organizations which were prominent in the media discussion of the Enfield poltergeist case. These are the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research. And that's that word, psychical. Okay, yeah. Something you don't usually hear outside of like Ghostbusters. And then the counter-organization, the antagonist, is Psycop. C-S-I-C-O-P, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Now, when Pasco is mad at the skeptic guy and says, You psychop people! I thought she was saying psych-op, like P-S-Y-C-H-O-P. Oh, yeah. Like a psychic operation, like the MK Ultra brainwashing, anything that the military or the CIA does in terms of, like, psychological manipulation, that's also called psych-op. But no, this is C-S-I-C-O-P. And to simplify, I read that they are now called the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which now makes them CSI, which is also confusing. Oh, boy. Yeah. But anyhow, these are the two groups counseling Parkinson throughout the evening. Another thing they have going on is this switchboard. We're here to take your calls, and they request that people call in and describe their own ghostly experiences that they've had in their lives. Encounters with the paranormal. So I think I'll throw in here that there's a documentary that was made in 2012 of the making of and reaction to this. And 
I tried really hard to find a streaming copy of it, but I could not find one. And a DVD that I bought by the time I was looking at it would not have made it in time. So I'm kind of curious. I read a couple of mixed reviews on it being not the most insightful documentary, but I still think it would have been interesting to learn a little bit more about the thought processes that went into it. But the reason I bring this up is one anecdote I read. I can't remember if this was on an article I read or if this was on Wikipedia, is that so they 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 showed the actual BBC phone number on there. So if you dialed the number, it would actually call you into the BBC. And if you called in, they would say, hey, don't worry, everything you're seeing is fake. It was a fictional show. But it got so many calls in that it jammed their phone board, which was making people even more panicked because they couldn't call in and a lot of people were calling in. And so they thought like things were getting crazy out there or something. So I don't know. That's wild. Yeah, I also tried to track down this documentary, which is called Behind the Curtain. And I also had no luck. Like, there's very little about this thing other than an IMDb rating, which was not very high. But I am certainly curious. I wanted to sidebar here for a second and talk a little bit about early 90s media tech, TV technology. I have often found it interesting that the idea of like a haunted VHS is so prevalent in pop culture. Hmm. So this was 1992. So all this tech is cutting edge at the time. And yet VHS is still the haunted medium of choice. Like in the later 90s, of course, you had things like Ringu from Japan, which became the ring in the US. But like even still, there seems to be a nostalgia, like this spookiness associated with the more analog technology of VHS. We ha- There's the whole VHS franchise, stuff like the Poughkeepsie tapes. And I wonder why did... Ghosts never progress to using DVDs, Dan. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it just feels intuitive. It's like, uh, it's basically a photograph. Uh, off air, we were talking about the process of putting a photograph onto film, and there's like so much of the actual like light and atmosphere and stuff getting onto the film. I guess there's something about that that makes it just seem silly if it were to be on a DVD, whereas like the prospect of it being on this piece of rolling film that goes into your VHS that's kind of hefty, I don't know, just feels a little more plausible. I also asked Dan to listen to a short audio story called The Home Video Ghost. Did you get a chance to check that out? Oh, shoot, I forgot to do it. I said I was going to, then I forgot to. Oh, that's all right. No worries, because I'm going to talk about it right now. I'll listen to it after we record. This came out on a cassette tape called Berry Berry Scary Stories, which came in a box of Berry Berry Kicks, the fruit-flavored variant of Kicks cereal, of which I was an avid consumer at the age of five. And this tape has got a story on each side, the A side and the B side. And the story on the B side is called The Home Video Ghost. And I'm convinced it inspired the ring because this is 1995 and that's, you know, years before the Japanese original. I think one of these boxes got shipped to Japan. (laughs) But anyhow, the story is this, like, I guess, 90s teenager rents a videotape 
I should have written out the plot summary a little more, but I'm just going off the cuff. I have listened to it many times. I uploaded the tape to SoundCloud, and for a long time that was the only way that you could find it online. But he finds this spooky tape at the VHS store, and he walks it to the counter, and suddenly there's this new clerk who no one has ever seen before. And he says, no one has ever rented that tape, and probably never will again. And <laughs> he just gives it to him. <laughs> to take home he's like okay all right and then he puts it in and sure enough a ghost comes out and haunts him and the ghost's plan is that a piece of the ghost is going to go into every videotape you touch and so every time you rent a videotape and it goes back to the store and someone else touches that tape i'll get more and more power and that is a big part of what's going to happen in Ghostwatch. Spoilers, maybe. <laughs> um, what was my point? Just that this is a Halloween memory for me, something we've had in the Halloween box of stuff since 1995. Also, it has a great line where the kid's mom is leaving for like a late dinner or something, and she says she'll be back later and, and do your homework before you watch any TV. And he says homework who needs it video is my life i could watch this stuff all day and if we make like goods hoodies i'm i want a version of that quote on there <laughs> video is my life i could watch this stuff all day <laughs> a couple of things occurred to me while you were telling that story um one is that maybe another reason for the enduring fixation on a vhs as something that can capture the spooky is the way that you can record over VHSs. Like if you have a VHS, you can record onto it. Like anyone who has one can put something on it. So that kind of ties in with another reason that I think this kind of thing has traction from about this era is like nowadays, anything that is noteworthy that is a video is going to be online and anyone can look at it and dissect it and talk about it and stuff. But this era of like things had to be passed around by hand and had a word of mouth way of growing just is so much more in line with the traditional ghost story model where, oh, there's this legend of this thing that you need to have seen it or something. And, uh, you know, it's great that we have access to everything under the sun that can be put out there on the Internet, you know, Literally, more films can be watched in your fingertips than 20 years ago anyone could have ever watched in their entire lifetime, you know. But there is something lost to that, to, to having everything shareable with everyone and anyone can check the tapes at all times. And all you have to do is send a URL to someone. There's no driving to somebody's house and handing them the VHS the way that there used to be. I don't know. That's a really great point. Yeah. I mean... With VHS, you could be the only one who has that tape. Like, if it's a home video, it could be the only one that exists of that footage. Right. And I was intending to get back on track, but that reminded me of a very specific anecdote. And I'm looking for an excuse to put it off, but this might be the most perfect time. So will you permit me one more jump off topic? Go for it, yeah. All right, so my brother, my younger brother was in high school 
uh, I think 2012 to 2015. And at one point, one of the teachers who leads a club called DECA, which is about marketing and like teaching students about business and advertising. Anyway, he threw out like 15 years worth of student projects that had just accumulated. And so there were these big stacks of VHS tapes that he threw in the dumpster. And my brother dove into the dumpster behind his high school and dug out all these VHS tapes and brought them home. And we chronicled them, cataloged <laughs> them, watched what was on all of them. The very first one we popped in was the best because the tape was just labeled Jenga Club. <laughs> and it was primarily an ad for the student Jenga Club. Which, who knows how long that existed. But... <laughs> the fuck? What the fuck is a Jenga club? How can you have a club around playing Jenga? It's not like chess, where you gotta learn strategies or something. <laughs> Good reaction. We can put what the fuck is a Jenga club on the hoodies, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But if I ever if I ever make a movie or something, you know how they have like nonsensical working titles. My working title is going to be Jenga Club. But what is wild and what made this tape better than the others is it was clear this tape had been used by like maybe the parents first and then the older sibling and then the younger sibling. Because in between the takes for the Jenga Club ad, there was random shots, like, fading in and out through the static of this dude walking around like a food lion and trying to talk to people and get them to support him for, I think it's student treasurer. <laughs> but what was great is that he would just, like, randomly appear and he's walking through the store and then he fades out again and then it's the younger brother <laughs> and and then like after that's all done and the ad ends suddenly it's an episode of sex in the city oh wow someone had taped it right and yeah just a one-of-a-kind media artifact and actually i have uploaded this to youtube so if we ever get a media section up and running, this we could plant this link there. Nice. Jenga Club. Didn't think I'd be talking Jenga Club tonight, but I'm glad we got the chance. Now let's get back on topic. So through interviews with the family inside the house that Ghostwatch is focused on, we start to learn about this entity that's haunting them. And the kids have named it Pipes. Because originally that's the mother's explanation for the knocking on the walls. She says, oh, it's pipes knocking. Like the plumbing. When the movie begins, it's like pretty peaceful in the house. There's not a lot going on right at the start. And the guy, especially presenting out in the street outside, is taking a very like dismissive jocular approach to what's going on. Like, even when he's talking to the family, which seems pretty offensive to me. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it kind of simulates the experience of being gaslit to some extent. It's like, I don't know, I thought this was kind of interesting. Like, it wasn't really scary at this point at all, because that's kind of the point, is like, nobody believes it's real. But 
the fact that these characters so steadfastly believed it was real, but like all these experts, quote unquote, and personalities and stuff are just treating it as one big joke. Like, of course you're crazy. Of course there's not ghosts. It's like, okay, this is kind of interesting. Like the way that it shows their ideas. And I suspected there would be at some point some vindication for the people who believe there were ghosts of like being told that you're, you're just totally wrong and off the deep end for thinking this thing is possibly true when you know in your heart it is true. Yeah. And it's kind of the idea that even something traumatizing can make a soundbite a pop culture commodity. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just going to be fun for the spectators to watch these crazy people who say there's a ghost. And this dude who is taking the most dismissive view of it, who's on the scene, is named Craig Charles. And early in the film, he does this fake-out jump scare where he jumps out of a cabinet wearing, a like, a werewolf mask. And the kids laugh at it and say they were in on it, which, I don't know, I found a little out of character. I guess it's good that they can still make light of their situation, but it felt a little weird. There's discussion in the studio that the poltergeist seems to be most active when the elder daughter, whose name is Suzanne, is in an emotional state. And there's talk about how poltergeists tend to, like, latch on to or be manifestations of a teenager's pent-up angst, which was definitely a topic of discussion in the Enfield case, and... I haven't actually seen the Spielberg movie Poltergeist, but I think there's some of that. Yeah, I kept wondering if, to what extent, the existence of a ghost here would serve some thematic purpose. And this was definitely hinting that it was going to go down that route in a way that I, I don't think it really like dug too deep into that. But I, I wondered if that was like a reference to something so that's it's interesting to know it was connected to that Mm -hmm. that actual poltergeist case yeah so it's kind of like that's the textbook poltergeist and so that's the example the experts are pointing to saying well it could be associated with the teenage daughter and then you know the counterpoint to that is well maybe she's the one faking it and that's why and actually as it goes along we do see the older daughter faking something banging on the plumbing which apparently is something that actually happened in the enfield case uh but pasco says but but all the other stuff all the other things that happened how can you deny those Mm. and Mm -hmm. that's kind of what these ghost investigators who checked out the house in the 70s and were arguably duped have said subsequently like well but but what about the other stuff huh And some of the things that Pasco cites, because we see, like, some of her research tapes, uh, she, like, put the older daughter in a, like, a sensory deprivation tank thing with her, you know, her eyes and her ears covered and then, like, hypnotized her or something to get her subconscious mind unfiltered and started talking with this ghost voice that's coming out of the the daughter like i i think they even say that like she's got cotton balls in her mouth or something or she's got her lips taped shut and still this spooky voice is coming out 
I like the spooky voices in this. They they were pretty good. Definitely yeah. catch you off guard. Make your skin crawl a little bit. Right. What I think is pretty cool is apparently the director, Leslie Manning, did this ghost voice. What I read is that like the people that she was trying to coach to do it weren't doing what she wanted. She's like, I'll, I'll do it. And so this ghost voice, I'm going to try to recreate it here. Okay. And I'll do my best. And if it's no good, you can you try your impression, Dan. But it's like this wispy, low sound that the first time I watched it, I couldn't understand at all what it was saying. But then, like, people would say, oh, it said this. And then listening back, I can hear that. Mm. But it's like... Let's see. I, I had it at the start. I'm going to do my best. But one thing that the ghost always says is this weird nursery rhyme that I've never heard. So it must be British. But it says, round and round the garden like a teddy bear. Something like that. Something along those lines. Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't think I'm going to top that. And yeah. So it's like you got to hear it back to understand what it's saying. But it does sound pretty spooky and disembodied. I watched it with subtitles, so that... Oh, that helped. Yeah. Although a couple times it kind of spoiled it because it would say, Ghost says, colon, like even when it was coming out of somebody else. I was like, oh, okay. Like that kind of spoiled the surprise or like didn't let me discover that surprise naturally. But yeah. And yes, over the course of the hour, it becomes more and more clear that the ghost is actually not fake. There is really ghost stuff going on because the manifestations of the ghost become more and more present, violent, vindictive. And the family and the researchers gradually piece together more information about the history of this ghost that they call pipes. And it turns out that it's kind of years and years of amalgamated negative spiritual energy that have all kind of coagulated around this one location and that over the decades it has kind of possessed multiple people and i think pasco says something about onion skin that shrek style there's layers here like each successively possessed person becomes an element of the makeup of this entity. Yeah, this was kind of confusing to me because I mistook it as people giving false stories for what the ghost was, and we were going to learn what it was at the end. But finally, yeah, it became clear that all these all these speculations we were hearing about, well, I heard so-and-so died in this spot, were like supposed to together make up the pipes or whatever, pipes. Right. Yeah, it's like all the stories that we're hearing are true because what it looks like and we do catch glimpses of it like Tyler Durden style or or more like the spooky face in The Exorcist that gets like flashed is it takes the form of a child molester named Raymond Tunstall who lived in the 60s and who was apparently possessed by an earlier ghost who was in the form of a Victorian era female 
what they call a baby farmer, like a, a wet nurse, somebody who would take money to care for children, but apparently she was disposing of some of her charges, murdering babies. And I think there is a historical case that this also is drawing on some some Victorian era serial killer of infants. Right. But just to clarify, I think both of the characters you described are fictional characters, like not real cases. of Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But obviously it's all in this metafictional presentation. So who's to say what's real? But yes, as far as I know, these specific people making up the ghost did not live in the reality that we know. Right. But because the man was possessed by the woman, the ghost is the dude wearing a dress. And also he killed himself in the sixties in a locked room and he had a dozen pet cats. And after his death, the cats ate him. And so his ghost is this dude in a dress that has been, half eaten by cats so that's the visual for you we never see him very squarely on but there's lots of blink and you'll miss it moments that people can dissect now that it's up on youtube but it would have been pretty interesting when it was on tv only once like i mean can you think when there was no like home video release of this and just the one broadcast i think that would have been kind of crazy talking about like what everybody's individual experience of it was did you see this did you see that well what did you see yeah that kind of ties in with what we were talking about earlier about the vhs era when things were not immediately accessible to everybody and you had to rely on (laughs) did you see that episode last night oh well now you're not going to see it for five years until it's in reruns you know there was no like streaming playback or whatever but yeah, I think I agree, especially this one where we we see it like there's one time where the movie, if you call it a movie, the the whatever this is, does like a dark filter. So you see the shape of the man moving around. But in general, it relies on like very quick impressions and cameras flicking around. So I can definitely see like debating. Oh, was that a shadow? Was that the boom mic shadow or was that? The ghost shadow or something like that. Right, like there's a whip pan and you'll see the ghost like standing by a curtain or like they walk by a mirror and if you look at the mirror, the ghost is there. Yeah, there's like 12 or so of these appearances. Actually, early in the movie, like the very first thing that we see is this clip from one of the like closed circuit cameras they set up in the girl's bedroom and they play that at the start of the show and you don't see anything like there's nothing there but then one of the call-in calls somebody says i think i saw a figure in that clip that you showed at the beginning of the show and then they play it back and suddenly now there is a there is somebody standing there in the corner and then like the hosts are arguing well i think i did see something well i don't know play it again and then they play it again and again there's nobody there And so just they're really milking this sense of like your eyes are fooling you. Right. But as the film goes along, the manifestations build and build. Things get crazier and crazier until 
this host that is there in the house who is this woman named Sarah Green who hosted a children's show apparently in England at the time. So something you got to understand is that I guess where the the 60s dude killed himself was in this cabinet under the stairs. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a full basement or not. I used to think it was a full basement, but then it might just be like a Harry Potter cupboard. I, I couldn't really tell. But anyway, it's under the stairs and the family has blocked it off. And for reasons I don't understand, the film crew is like, wow. All the ghost sounds are coming from behind this door that the family has boarded over. So get the pry bar. <laughs> it's like, uh, do you not believe at this point? <laughs> it's like, I mean, there's like the, the howling of 20 ghostly cats and like mirrors being flung from the walls. But okay, sure. Pry off the, the boards keeping him in the basement. Anyway, that's what they do. They open it up, and the door swings open of its own accord, and in pretty short order, I think a little more happens, but, like, the lights go out, and they have this uh, infrared camera that they get to show off for a little bit. But yeah, the basement door is open, and Sarah Green wanders over there, and the ghost yanks her through, and the door slams shut, and the feed from the house is lost. Yeah, it, it happens quickly. Uh, one thing you sort of skipped over, Brian, that we don't need to dwell too much on, it's, you know, Britishisms and Americanisms. They called the basement or the, the cupboard or whatever the glory hole, which I've only ever known as an American sexual phrase. Had you ever heard of this as like slang for a basement or a closet in England before? It took some getting used to hearing these people <laughs> saying glory hole with a straight face over and over again. <laughs> with with children around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I have not heard about that. But honestly, I've I've talked before, the Britishism that bothers me most is ice lolly for popsicle. So <laughs> glo glory hole is just background noise to me in this case. <laughs> it's like you wanna call your spooky cabinet that whatever. But also, I mean I don't think you'd want to be trapped with a ghost in the American understanding of a glory hole either. Yeah, I think that's fair. It'd be a very different experience, but yeah. But suddenly, back in the studio, paranormal stuff is going on. Like, there's a wind blowing inside, and all the papers are blowing around. And uh, what this really makes me think of is the look around you episode about ghosts which of course is also british but yeah stuff's blowing around and the lights are going crazy it's also kind of like uh the end of raiders of the lost ark when all the ghosts are flying around and messing with the nazis film equipment mm -hmm. but like all the presenters are yelling at each other get out get out and lights are exploding teacups are flying around and smashing and then all the lights go out there too and the host michael parkinson is like wandering around in the dark confused and then after a pause and a silence we hear him muttering the nursery rhyme that means you're possessed by the ghost and then the very last beat is he starts doing the scary 
ghost voice. And then it just is completely cuts off. And the reasoning behind this paranormal explosion in the studio, before everything goes completely to hell, the experts and the hosts are talking and they come to the conclusion that by broadcasting the actions of the ghost, they've created what they call a nationwide seance. And by broadcasting this into people's homes, they have exponentially boosted the ghost's power. I thought this was a really interesting idea, this last thing you just described, because, well, first of all, it adds some like thematic heft to the story itself. Because now it's like, oh, the sort of exploitational way that we're telling this story is actually making everything worse, you know, for everyone. And so that's kind of an interesting, like literalizing that as a horror element. I think that's kind of cool. Um, it's also just like a creative way to kind of pay off on it and probably amplify the sense of hysteria for people who might just be randomly tuning in like, oh, my God. The witches, they're, the, the ghosts, they're in my house too. Yes, because I think what makes this element most effective is that throughout the show, we've had this call-in line and they use it in a really clever way because remember they said, call us and describe your paranormal experiences. And so at the beginning, people are talking about, oh, well, when I was a kid, I saw a ghost and it's all past tense stuff. But then as the film goes along, people are calling in and their anecdotes shift to the present tense. They're saying things like, oh, well, this one dude calls in and he sounds like Pippin, the Hobbit. <laughs> and you know, Wikipedia said he's Welsh. Apparently this is a Welsh accent. But, you know, like the goofiest version of an English accent you could think of. Just a very silly sounding man. He says, and my sandwich flew right off my... It flew off my lap, it did. <laughs> and all my mates saw it. And uh, the, the host is like, oh, clearly he's having a lark. You know, he, he, oh, you've had one to drink tonight, haven't you? Did the BBC let these people on live TV? Like, what was their screening process like? <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, then later on, you know, somebody calls in and says... Our glass table just exploded and shredded my husband's face and hands and he's off at the hospital and my kids are glued to the screen. I can't pull them away. And so it's all about this broadcast that's taking place. Basically, not only are these paranormal happenings taking place during the broadcast, but we find out by the end that they are taking place because of the broadcast. And we don't maybe fully put those pieces together. And we don't maybe fully put those pieces together until this revelation at the end that what's been going on is this seance boosting the influence of the ghost. But yeah, apparently that is what's happening. Not only has he haunted his original house and the broadcasting studio, he's also hosted all these other houses and presumably yours too because you're watching the show. Yeah, kind of like the ring in that regard. You, by watching it, you become a part of it. Are you familiar with the podcast that ran? Man, I don't even know when it ran. I would guess in like the mid to late 2010s. 
called The Message. No. Tell us about it. Yeah. So uh, it's really interesting. It's a fictional podcast, but it's kind of like this presented as non-fictional. And the premise is that basically, I forget the specifics of who all the characters are, but uh, we follow one character around who I think is like a student, like doing a paper or something like that. I forget exactly what it is, but whoever this this character is, is recording these people who are investigating what they believe might be a message from outer space, potentially from an alien. And so it's like a podcast. It's something like six or eight episodes and kind of shows them trying to understand it and kind of like the ring. Once you've heard this transmission, then strange things start happening to you. And I, is it okay if I go ahead and, and spoil the ending because it's a clever ending and it's semi-related? Sure, go ahead. I spoiled the home video ghost. <laughs> That's true. The twist ending is that the character that we've been following is actually one of the aliens in disguise and has been making this podcast to get it in the ears of all the listeners so that they will be subject to the brain-controlling mechanisms of the message. And in fact, the podcast itself is the message that that you're listening to. <laughs> um, there's, it might not be like the entire podcast. It might just be like one segment of it that they play, but I thought that was a pretty clever twist. And it also kind of like really plays up the the format itself, much in the same way like the Ghost Watch takes advantage of simulating the newscast format, documentary format that really played up the fact that it was a podcast and the way that people consumed it to like increase its impact. Pretty interesting. I like that. And yeah, to a point that you made earlier, I think the way that the chickens come home to roost, not only for the reporters sensationalizing this case, but also for the viewers at home, really is a kind of comeuppance, a kind of indictment of people being spectators through the news of others' misfortunes. You know, that, that people's trauma can just become something that you turn on and off via your TV set for keeping yourself informed or more ghoulishly for a sort of entertainment. I think that was very much a theme in the 90s with stuff like Jerry Springer, hard copy, that, you know, taboos were stretching in terms of what could be shown on TV that were quote-unquote real and that a lot of it was this sensationalism of not-so-great stuff that people went through in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, and I mean, it definitely wouldn't go away. It would be turned into a whole reality TV genre of television, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's Ghostwatch. A bunch of real-life TV personalities from the BBC getting murdered on air by ghosts live. It's really cool that they got like legit news people in on it. Just like the thought of having some respected news anchor pretending to be a ghost at the end. I'm trying to think of like who the, the modern day equivalent would be. Yeah, I mean, it's different city to city, but like, yeah, actually, like if Anderson Cooper did it or something. Or like Dan Rather or something. Right, I was thinking Dan Rather, but that's not really even contemporary anymore. Dan Rather hasn't been around for years and years. Or like Charlie Brokaw or 
uh, one of those personalities, but those are all like 10 year old names at this point. So yeah, probably like a CNN guy like Don Lemon, if he got possessed or something. And then just aired as if it were real. You said Charlie Brokaw. Did you mean Tom Brokaw? Who am I thinking of? I There's guess another Tom- Charlie. What's his name? Oh, God. Charlie, Charlie Rose. Rose. Yeah. Yeah. I think I combined Charlie Rose and Tom Brokaw. <laughs> Into one super anchor. <laughs> yeah. They're just layers. Onion skin. Resistant to ghosts if they combine. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting weird. Yeah. So... Thoughts, Dan? Just immediate takeaways from your first experience of Ghostwatch. What are some things on your mind? Um, I think it's very interesting, pretty cool. I think the story of it and the premise of it surpasses it as an actual piece of film for me. I actually do think it's quite scary. I think it works, but I think it's even more cool that like, it is what it is and it was presented as real. And just like imagining that and the reactions that people had to that and like what it would have been like to see it and that they got all these real people, real talents involved playing themselves and like faking it as real. I just think that's awesome. Right. And apparently it did lead to some national furor, some uproar, and there is debate over whether this was exaggerated, but... At least one person, supposedly, who may have already been obsessed with ghosts, did did end up killing themselves. And there was debate over, you know, this is the era of, like, the, the late video nasty era in England specifically. But uh, there have been decades of discussion of, like, violence in media and how does it affect society. And especially because this was presented as the pseudo news report. It's like people are going to be misled by this. People are going to panic. It's the same thing as the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast. Mm -hmm. So definitely interesting. And in the end, the BBC has not ever re-aired it. Although cable in England and other Commonwealth countries has shown it. Uh, But it's like a TV urban legend because, well, it was so scary that they only showed it once. Well, what's in it? We've got to find this thing. Right. What's the famous Nickelodeon movie? Crybaby Lane. And I'm glad you asked about that. That's probably, honestly, how I even heard about this, is because I read the Crybaby Lane thread on Reddit and then went down the rabbit hole. But, you know, I don't know that this one was ever, quote-unquote, lost. They just didn't show it again. But people did have their recordings. And, yeah, the other thing I want to say is, as you said, Dan, this is a pretty scary movie. Like... The first time I watched it, as I was watching it, it didn't bother me that much. But then, like, when I went to bed, I realized that I had to have the light on a little longer. (laughs) And it's like, I'm actually kind of scared of the corners of the room now. Like, it lingered with me for a while. And even just, like, watching it yesterday, I had to wait a while before I went to sleep. It's like, this is a creepy one. I It will have you, like, looking out of the corner of your eye and, and having the hair on your neck rise up, and you're just a little extra cautious every time you turn a corner or look in a mirror or something. Yeah, I think the immersion of found footage in particular does that. What I found really tense was when they would show the seemingly normal scenes inside the house and you're just waiting for something to go wrong, particularly in the second half. It's like 
there's just high suspense because you know what the format is. And, and then I think it's also enhanced by the limitations of the technology, or at least like the way the technology is depicted. Like you have one person's camera and if the camera gets knocked over or it's not pointed the right way, then just like the unknown of what you might not be seeing, especially cause it's like a pretty small set and you can very much imagine every piece of it. It's like, you feel like you're in there. And just like this one camera floating around. Oh, and it also has like a couple of uh, security camera type footage things that can add in there. And yeah, it just it's creepy and suspenseful. Yeah, I'm glad you brought our attention back to the technology because not only do I really like this 90s house, it's almost like the full house house or something. I don't know, just an early 90s interior of a home. But... There's like tech inside the house, too. So I was trying this viewing to like read their PAL format VHSs on their shelf, like trying to see what they had on their video shelf. Uh, But also in front of their TV, they have this thing hooked up that looks like a Commodore 64. And I want to know what this thing is because it's, you know, it's a home computer slash video game system with the big keyboard that you can like stick cartridges into. And I just have no idea what it is. I want to see one up close. Yeah. Lots of cool stuff there. I like the one. I I don't think this is the one you're talking about where they brought out a, a screen and they said, here, circle on this footage live. Like you can draw on it and it will show what you're drawing matched up with this. And this monster like device they rolled out there. <laughs> I did like that too. It was it worked kind of like an iPad, like a tablet. Yeah. Except it's got this huge CRT TV built into it. So yeah, this huge heavy thing they roll out so that she can write on it with a light pencil. Yeah. Any other good or not so good things to consider before we rate? One thing I struggled with is that it doesn't really get scary until like halfway through. So you have to kind of be content with like the laying of the groundwork and the almost like the the themes that they're laying out of like skepticism versus belief and just lots of people say oh the, is it going to be real oh it's nothing going to be real this is all so goofy and that goes on for like quite a bit of time where you kind of need to like learn the format and learn the stuff which i guess is kind of par for the course for any horror movie but it it felt somewhat protracted Right. But it's also important in lending to this sense of reality. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Like, if you were just tuning in and thinking it was a ghost hunter show, subconsciously you're not really expecting to see anything, because when on those shows does anything ever actually happen, right? Yeah. No, never. And if it does, it's like talking head saying the equivalent of what was the line, well, how would you explain all those other things, even if that one was faked? Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I found it really effective, this mix of presentation elements, having people inside the house, outside the house, in the studio, on the call line, these experts that they talk to. And I liked how they kept checking back in with all these people as the story builds. I thought that structure works pretty well. Yeah. Although a couple times it was a little forced. It was like, oh, wow. This has been a crazy revelation, but for a moment, let's go check in with this other guy who's standing outside. (laughs) It's like it needed to check in with all these things. Yeah, that is 
True. One thing that only really bugs me after a couple viewings of this movie is there are some kind of inconsistencies. They mention early on that they're going to be checking in all evening, but then when it hits the one hour mark, they're like, we're going to be going beyond our assigned hour block to continue covering the events at the house. And so it's like, it's this breaking news thing that they're preempting the following program to go past an hour to go, you know, we're, we're going to stay on the air as long as we can. And it's like, well, that's what you said at the start you were going to do. Yeah, I wonder if all evening is one of those like colloquialisms of like, for the duration of our thing. I don't know. I'll bet you're onto something. That's that's probably what they meant. But I did think it was kind of stupid how he said, well, with this, we're going to have to stay here for a long time and cancel whatever else might be on. Like 30 seconds after they had just finished a long rant about how everything was really fake that was going on. And then like one mildly creepy thing happened. And then immediately it was like, well, we obviously can't turn to anything else because of the supernatural activity here we need to keep up with. <laughs> the other thing that bugged me is that for most of the movie, the mom of the family comes out into the street and is sitting in the media van. And that's where she's reporting from, which is totally ridiculous to me. Like, she's the one who knows that this poltergeist is real and really terrorizing her children. And yeah, okay, I'll come sit outside separate from the kids as they're being tortured by a ghost. That's fine. Whatever the BBC needs me to do, that's what I'll do. I would think she would be in the house. I think she should be inside. That's what I would do if I was the mother of ghost-addled British preteens. I agree. That, that was kind of odd, and, and I didn't really understand why it was happening. So, any other matters, any other minutes or business, Dan, before we decide, is it good? No, I'm ready. All right, well, you are our special phone-in guest tonight, Dan Stalkup of <laughs> Fairfax. So, tell us about your paranormal experience of Ghostwatch. So, is it good is our signature section on this podcast where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good which is our one out of eight to our masterpiece rating tour de good as in tour de force which is an eight out of eight so i will be answering first is it good and i am right on the fence between a good five out of eight and a very good um i, I really like the premise of it and the execution of it i think as a piece of film itself it's maybe a little bit less interesting than like the story around the piece of film itself um it is pretty scary though and it's pretty convincing and i think the last 15 minutes are like genuinely gripping it's just kind of cool it's unique it's interesting so i'm gonna give it a very soft six very good on the is it good scale uh, what about you brian I'm right there with you, Dan. This is a very good for me, six out of eight. It's a really unique presentation. I'm surprised, in a sense, this didn't kick off the found footage wave. You know, people slept on it for another six years. I guess we just weren't ready for it yet. But it is creepy, and it's also a time capsule. I mean, I think 
I would probably be into a preserved tape of a 1992 news broadcast that like peered into a home, even if nothing spooky happened. Just seeing all this old VHS tech, I would still enjoy that. But the fact that it takes this cool angle of the ghost haunting through the airwaves and seeping into people's homes because they tuned in, it's all really neat. And, you know, almost timeless. This was the sort of thing that worked in the 30s. It worked in the 90s. I think it would still be effective today. And I like it. I'm glad that I got to share it. Yeah, thank you. This was a unique one, one that was not on my radar at all. So uh, I've already shared it with a couple of people, too. So hopefully other people react to it the way that we have, because I, I think it's something something special. And because you listen to the podcast, a ghost will follow you home to your glory hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fun and games this evening on the BBC, Dan. <laughs> so what is next on the goods? Spooky season. Brian, uh, if you're up for it, I'm going to have us watch not one, not two, not three, but four films for our next episode quad movie quad movie episode and um it'll help that they're short-ish movies i'm gonna have us watch the halloween town franchise which i believe is four movies long and i believe they're all disney channel original movies i think halloween town is one of the og decoms i actually don't know very much about them though i just saw that they existed and i put a pin in it what's the phrase from the Garfield YouTube video. I'll have to see about that later or something like that. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. I'll have to see this later. Well, there you go. That's exactly what I did here because I kind of want to know what is the, to my knowledge, only four movie franchise in DCOM history and it's spooky themed. Well, I'm, now I'm curious. So that's what we'll be watching and we'll be discussing. I'll, I'll try to come up with a way to keep those those recaps fairly brisk when we talk about it, but Halloween Town and its three sequels. All right. You know, I love a decom. You know, I love four decoms. I'll, I'll have to do a lot of watching in between other things, but I am ready. This sounds like fun. And I look forward to joining you again, Dan. Thanks for tuning in, listeners. And now you can listen to this episode anytime. We're not going to lock it in the vault. It is yours to pass around. Do with as you please. Happy Haunted.